God is great. He's magnificent. He's awesome. He's beautiful. He's glorious. He's amazing. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on and on and on. Talk about how good and how great our God is. If you don't know how great and how good God is, you're not in the Word. Because the more we study the Word, the more, the more we unpack the truths of the Bible, the greater and greater God becomes in our life. The more we understand, the more He reveals Himself to us by His Holy Spirit, and we rejoice in that. Uh, this morning, uh, I, I'm doing a little Christmas series here for the month of December, and the theme is the treasure of of Christmas. What is the treasure of Christmas? Last week, what did we look at? We looked at adoption, how God has adopted us into his family. And today, we're going to look at, I love this subject. Oh man, it just brings joy to my heart. A living hope. A living hope. So if you come this morning and you don't feel that hope, you don't have that living hope. Maybe you don't understand that living hope. My prayer is that as you're walking out this door, heading to grab you some grub at lunchtime, that you understand what living hope is, and that we leave here with a vibrant living hope in our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you for a living hope, and thank you, Lord. We're going to unpack that this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1 as we look at what it means to have a living hope. Father, touch our hearts by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Not by my words, but by the power of your Spirit. Touch our hearts as we study your word. Give us a living hope. Let it come to life this morning. We pray this, Lord, in the mighty, mighty powerful name of the Lord Jesus. All God's people said, amen. 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 You may have a seat. This morning we're... Uh, our, we're studying 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and we're looking at a living hope, a living hope. I love this message, and uh, I'm thankful for Christmas and everything it means. It's more than shopping, family. It's more than shopping. It's more than holiday cheers and going to the parties, as much as I enjoy all that. And, yeah, I've got decorations in front of my house, and i got my, my Christmas tree up. But I'm thankful that Christmas is a reminder that we have uh, a living hope. That is truly the treasure of Christmas. When you hear the word, and I guess, again, this morning's theme uh, is hope. When you hear the word hope used today, it does not have the same meaning as the Bible's definition of hope. Today, people say, I hope to get this, or I hope to get that. Or one of the famous ones we like to hear is, I hope I win the lottery. That's a famous thing that we like to hear. But that's not a biblical definition of hope. That definition leaves room for circumstances, chance, and uncertainty. And that is not the biblical definition of hope. So let's get that straight in our minds what does the word hope mean in the Bible? The Greek word for hope is elpis. Elpis. And according to Vine's Expository Dictionary, it is a certainty. It is a certainty. It is an unwavering confidence in the things to come. 
Okay? That's what hope is. This is the Bible's definition of hope. And this is the type of hope that Jesus came to bring. So the title of my message this morning is The Treasure of Christmas, A Living Hope. And let's leave here today having a certainty and a confidence in things to come as it pertains to our relationship with Christ. And in our life, God gives us hope for eternity and God gives us hope for this life. Friends and family, you're still breathing air because God is not finished with you. <laughs> God is not done with you. And if you're still breathing air, it's, it's still time to get things right and to live right and to have a living hope in our life. So the text I've chosen to teach from this morning for a living hope is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. So let's take a look at it this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethnia. Um, Peter wrote his epistle, 1 uh, Peter, to Christians in the first century who were enduring intense persecution, possibly under Nero. They were going through difficult times. And when they looked at this world through their natural eyes, things were not going the way that they wanted them to, okay? So what does Peter do here? He takes their minds, he, he, he writes this epistle to them, and he reminds them that this world is not their home. Look at what he calls them. The NASB translation uh, says aliens. He, he calls them aliens, the Greek word is paradidamas. It means, and some of your translations will use this word, it means exiles, foreigners, strangers, and pilgrims. But my favorite translation, of course, the NASB uses the word aliens. And by the way, Pastor David does, we, I do believe in aliens. You know that, right? I, I, I believe that aliens exist. I, I believe that there are real aliens in this universe. But they don't look like Yoda, and they don't look like E.T. They sit in front of me every Sunday, and they listen to me teach. That's what these aliens look like. And I consider myself one of those aliens also. Friends, if you have been born again, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are an alien, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We are pilgrims just passing through. Our hope is not fixated on this world why would you put your hope in this world there, there we need to make plans for life we need to plan to be successful and we need to make the very best of this life that god has given us but our ultimate hope our eternal hope our final hope is in the lord jesus christ because this world is passing friends and family put your hope in christ put your hope in christ he and his kingdom is eternal. And when you put your hope in Christ, friends and family, you will not be let down. And you will live as an alien or as an exile or a foreigner or a stranger. Because in the eyes of eternity, this world is not your home. But one day you'll get there in the new Jerusalem, the third heaven, the holy city that Jesus has gone to prepare for us according to John chapter 14, 
in Revelation chapter 21. Let's continue. The end of verse 1, I, I think the end of verse 1, the last three words of verse 1 actually go with verse 2. He says, after he reminds them of their aliens, he says, who are chosen, the end of verse 1, then it rolls into verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Friends and family, we have a living hope because Jesus chose us. He chose you. That word chosen is ekletos. It means picked out. It means selected. God looked down and he picked you. He selected you. This is the Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He chose you, friends. When did he choose you? Before the creation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. God looked down the corridor of time and chose us and made plans to call us to himself. That should humble your hearts. That should cause you to be thankful that God has chosen you. Jesus came to you. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, he opened your heart. And then you, in your free will, you responded by saying, yes, Lord, I need you. See, there's these two parallel themes that run through the New Testament. The sovereignty of God and man's free will. And as Christians and as Bible-believing Christians, we hold on to both. And we don't ignore one or the other. Or, or pick one side over the other. We hold to the sovereignty of God. Yes, he chose us before the foundation of the world. But at the same time, he gave man a free will and gave him the ability to choose and follow Christ. So people ask me, Pastor David, how can I know if I'm chosen or not? Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ and you'll know that you're chosen. But that, that, the, the fact that he chose us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, it should bring our hearts uh, rest. It should bring our hearts peace. And ultimately, it gives us a living hope because God is sovereign and God is in charge. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 20, 29. I call this double security, by the way. You know, you, sometimes you have insurance, then you have backup insurance. Sometimes you have double protection on your home, your auto. Well, you have double protection on your soul. And that's what Jesus talks about in John chapter 10. He says, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Stop right there. Verse 28, who's that speaking? Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will what? Never perish. They will never perish because the Lord Jesus Christ himself has grabbed hold of your heart, and he has saved you. By his plan, he said, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Last time I looked, that word no one, it means no one. It means no one. No one can snatch you out of Christ's hands. Okay, so that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember I said double protection? Look at the next verse. Look at what Jesus said, verse 29. should be up on the screen. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So verse 28, Jesus is talking about himself. Verse 29, he's talking about God the Father. So not only does the Lord Jesus Christ 
have his hand on your life, but so does God the Father. I just love that, that my heavenly Father is for me, the Lord Jesus Christ is for me, the Holy Spirit is for me, and all three members of the Trinity, they keep me and they hold me, and they do the exact same thing for you and I, friends. They do the exact same thing for you. They are working to draw you, to keep you, to lead you, to guide you, and to give you a living hope. Let that hope arise in your heart, that you have that. You're not just wandering aimlessly through this world as the earth is orbiting and rotating around the sun. We're not just this chaos of soup, but but we are in the sovereign plan of God, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is keeping you, is keeping your heart. When you wake up in the morning and you want to read your Bible, guess who gave you that desire? The Holy Spirit. Who gave you the desire to come to church? The Holy Spirit. You felt that tugging on your heart. That's the sovereignty of God. That's, he chose us according to the foreknowledge. So we have a living hope because he chose you. Let's continue in verse 2. I, I got verse 2 broken down into two or three parts. The next part of verse 2 says, by the what? The sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, those who have this living hope, what do they do? They yield. If you, ha- if you truly are born again and you truly have that living hope, you will yield your life to the work of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit want to do? Think about his name, Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit want to do? He wants to make you holy. He wants to make you holy. He wants to sanctify you and set you apart for himself. You see, the Holy Spirit cuts out the, whole, the work of the Spirit in our life after you become born again. He removes sinful habits of your flesh. He removes the lying. He removes the sexual immorality. He removes the stealing. And he causes you to desire to obey him because this living hope is on the inside. The Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, it, it, it causes us to grow in our service in the kingdom of God and it makes you a vessel of honor as you honor Christ with the way you live your life. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life can be described in three phases. Justification is when you get saved, you're justified, you're made right with God, and then you spend your life, you're in the process right now of what the Bible calls sanctification. And that's where the Holy Spirit is working in your life, and he is sanctifying you. He is making you holy and committed to him. And one day, when you step into eternity, you'll experience that third phase, which the Bible calls uh, glorification, where you see Christ face to face. So, let the Spirit work in your life because you have a living hope. Then the final part of verse 2 is just, there's a lot here. It says, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest of measure. This phrase, uh, sprinkled with blood, has a, it has a lot of Old Testament imagery where they, they, they sacrifice the blood there in the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the nation of Israel. But now we think about, that, we think about the atonement that was made in the tabernacle or, or in the temple for the sins of Israel. The sacrifice for our sin, 
For your sin, my sin, was made where? At the cross. It was made at the cross. Those who have this living hope live in the shadow of the cross. We live our lives in the shadow of the cross. I heard somebody say one time, I'm beyond the cross. I'm on to mature things. I'm on to big, bigger and greater things in my spiritual walk with Christ. Friends, we never leave the shadow of the cross. We live our lives in the shadow of the cross. We love the cross. We rejoice in the cross. We boast in the cross. Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Man, we love that cross. We love that cross that Jesus died on 2,000 years ago. And we live by faith in that event, knowing that we were made white as snow at the cross. We never get tired, or the, the cross never gets old in our life. The cross should always be the center point of the Christian life. We never mature to a, to a point in our Christian growth where we no longer need to be focused on the cross. The cross, the theology of the cross, it towers over all other subjects in Scripture. Is the cross at the center of your life? Is the cross at the center of your life? Do, do, do you stand in awe and like, wow, everything that took place there, the propitiation that took place there as Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins, the love that was displayed there at the cross where Paul said in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love that took place there, the propitiation that take place, take place there, it just, it, it enraptures our mind and blows us away for it was at the cross he made you white as snow, joy unspeakable. We are in the year 2023. So, 316 years ago, in 1707, Isaac Watts wrote these words. When I survey the wondrous cross, and you know this song, on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. Isaac Watts said all the things that this world has to offer, everything there is to put our hands on, everything there is to, to grab our attention, it is pale in comparison to the glory of the cross. And he says there, I love this, love so amazing. And I'm adding love so divine. And I'm adding love that demands my soul, love that demands my life and demands my all. The cross is beautiful, it's glorious, and it's through the cross that we have a living hope. You know, it's amazing how over the past 2,000 years, you go to Arlington National Cemetery, you go to other places, the cross is a symbol. The cross is a symbol in our world. What is it a symbol of, though? People see it as a symbol of sacrifice. People see it as a symbol in churches. 
But the cross is ultimately a symbol of God's love and the living hope. The Persians in 300 B.C. Um, created, uh, started the uh, crucifying, started uh, crucifying people as a way of political uh, execution for the things done wrong. They started at 300 B.C. By the first century, the Romans had perfected it to a science, and it was meant to inflict the, the most torture and punishment that they can inflict on a citizen. It was today's uh, version of the death penalty, the electric chair. It was meant back then to say, if you break Roman law, this is what will happen to you. And it was, inflict to, 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 it was meant to inflict serious pain. It was very difficult. But Jesus endured all that for, because of his great love for us and living hope. Let's, let's move forward. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is our money verse. Verse 3 gives us, verse 3 in 1 Peter chapter 1, it gives us the gateway to having this living hope. How do you, how can I, how can I gain, how can I receive, how can I partake of this living hope? It comes by, look at the verse, it comes by experiencing, notice he says in verse 3, he doesn't just say his mercy, but what does he say? His great mercy. God's great mercy that he, he, he demonstrates to us. And by being born again, that, that phrase born again, Born again is exactly as the word suggests. It is a new birth, a new life on the inside. It's where God guts all the darkness inside you and fills you with his Holy Spirit and fills you with hope. Prior to the new birth, you were spiritually dead and you had no interest in God. But now you are alive. You are alive. And Jesus Christ is everything you can't get enough worship. You can't get enough Bible. You want more and more. Why is that taking place on the inside? Because you've been born again. Friends and family, have you been born again? Born again does not happen right here. It's not enough just to have a mental assent to truth. It's not enough to just like Jesus. It's not enough to just go to church. It's not enough to just think, oh, this Jesus thing is cool. I'll read the Bible every now and then. That's not being born again. Born again happens right here on the inside. It's a spiritual heart transformation. How do, you, how do you become born again? By repenting of your sin, saying, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I put my trust in you, Lord Jesus. Please come into my life. And when you do that, you will be born again. You will be born again. That is the gateway to a living hope. If you're not born again, you won't have a living hope. You'll put your hope in the things of this world. You'll put your hope in, in drugs, alcohol, material possessions, the things of this world, your ideologies, your careers, and everything else if you're not born again. But if you're born again, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling on the inside, your living hope will be in Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He offers you Hope, hope, and not only hope, 
But I love how Peter says in verse 3, a living hope. These Christians that he wrote to that were suffering persecution, they needed a living hope. They needed to take their eyes off the world. They were being persecuted for their Christian beliefs. They were being persecuted for their biblical values. They were enduring intense persecution. Many of them were being put to death because in the Roman Greco world of the first century, there was one Lord. There was one God, and his name was Caesar. And you declare allegiance to Caesar and to the government, or you die. And they needed hope. They had found this new life in Christ, and now they're being torn. They're being persecuted. And now God gives them a living hope, and he gives that same living hope to you and I today. Verse 4, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance, which is, look at these words, how he describes it, imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Imperishable, it means it, it will not perish. It's undefiled, meaning it's pure, it's holy, it's good, it's right. It will not fade away. This living hope will never fade away. It will outlast everything. It will outlast your bank account. It will outlast your possessions. Every material thing you own will fade away. But this living hope in Christ, through being born again, it will last forever because God's kingdom is not of this world. It is eternal. Now, we don't forsake and abandon this world and forsake and abandon our lives and live the life of a monk. We need to live fruitful, productive lives. We need to get our education. We need to work hard, make a career, raise a family, live life, be good stewards of what God has given us in this life, okay? But at the same time, we need to live that life in this world with an eternal perspective. And when you live with an eternal perspective, you will have a living hope. It will not fade away. Verse 4. Verse 5. He says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. I can just imagine the recipients of this letter at Cappadocia when they received this letter from Peter and the persecution that they were undergoing that they were feeling pretty beaten up. They were feeling pretty battered. And they needed protection. They, and, and that's what Peter is saying here to them. God protect, is protecting you, brothers and sisters. He's protecting your hearts and your minds in the same way that Christ is protecting our hearts and, and our minds. Let's be honest. Let's be real. Let's be transparent. We take a beating on the outside in this life. Anybody going through difficult situations? Friends, family, job, whatever. I, I, I imagine if we took a poll and we took time to talk with everyone, each person would talk about a difficult situation that they're facing in this life with, with, with family or work or whatever. We take a beating on the outside, friends, as Christians. And we're not exempt from the trials and the tribulations and the difficult things this, that we face in this world. We face tragedy, we face bad news, we face betrayal by people we love, we face illnesses. Life can become very hard, okay? But, God, 
we are able to weather the storm because God is protecting us. I don't think God is keeping us from trials and tribulations and persecution. We're going through this world just like everybody else is. But on the inside of our souls and our minds, I believe God is guarding us. Because if I was left up to my own thinking, to my own way of thoughts and everything, I would be following the deception of the world. But because I'm born again and because I'll have this living hope, God is protecting our minds. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says this, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Take that to the bank. And he's protecting us uh, the power, through the power of God, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice. That makes absolutely no sense to my natural mind. But I'm going to talk about it in a second. In this you greatly rejoice, that even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now you may be thinking, you may be asking Peter, how can you have all these trials and tribulations and you're telling us to rejoice? You're telling us to rejoice in our difficult situation. You're telling us to rejoice in our trial. You're telling us to rejoice through the difficult things. We as creatures of comfort, we like for things to be good. We like for things to be right. We don't like to face difficulty when it comes to the different areas of our life. But here, he tells us to greatly rejoice. Why does he tell us to greatly rejoice? Well, there has to be a purpose. There has to be a purpose for trials and tribulations. So what are the purposes, what are the purposes of trials and tribulations in our life? The things that come to my mind that I've experienced in my life, and these are just off of Pastor David's heart as I was preparing my message this week, is they produce a spiritual backbone. They give you a backbone. They, they, they give you a spiritual backbone. They, 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 give us, um, they give us resolve. When we face adversity, when things aren't going the way that we'd like for them to go, in the way that we, we would hope they would go, what do we do? Do we stay the course? Or do we follow, fall away? Trials and tribulations are meant to give you resolve and produce a spiritual backbone. They build your faith. They build your faith. When I face trials, difficulties, difficult situations, my heart, the Holy Spirit tells me, go to the Word. Go to the Word and read about how Paul and Peter and the disciples, how they experienced the difficulties of life, how they experienced trials and, and tribulations, and look to see what, what did they do where did they go to? And what they do is what I want to do. And Paul, Paul, Paul goes to Christ. Peter goes to Christ. The disciples go to the anchor of their soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trials and tribulations, they direct our attention to what will last forever. You know, they're, they're, I, I hate them. Can't stand it. When things aren't going right and it it irks me and it makes me sad for some of us it makes us angry for some of us it makes us cry 
But in that anger, in those tears, let it direct your attention to what will last forever. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ and God's kingdom. Let the trials, let the trials and tribulations of this life not drive you away from Christ, but let the trials and tribulations drive you to Christ. Understanding you're not exempt from difficult situations. You know, we're going through this life just like everybody else is, but we have an anchor and a living hope for our soul. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love how in verse 7 he, de- he describes our faith. It's more precious than gold. How value, how much value do you place on your faith? How much value do you place on your Christian faith? Is it more precious than gold to you? Or do you just don't care? If you understand scripture and you understand what the Bible says about faith, man, there is nothing more important than your faith. Your faith should be your top priority, more precious than gold. There's nothing more important than your faith. It is by your faith in Christ you are saved and you have communion with God. Faith is a gift God has given us to have fellowship with him. And notice what it says here in this verse. I want to pull out a couple of phrases. One, it says, it says, our faith is tested by what? It's tested by fire. God allows our faith to be tested so that you can know if it's real or not. Faith is tested in the fires of adversity, trials, and tribulations. And after you've gone through those adversities, trials, and tribulations, faith gets magnified when you're able to minister to someone else who's gone through what you just went through. God's teaching you. God's teaching you through your adversity and through your trial to trust in him, look to him, look to his word, and don't be surprised if six months, a year, a couple years later, God is using you to minister to someone else who went through what you went through. You know, when others around you, talking about being tested by fire, when others around you abandon and turn back to the world, do you follow them? Do you follow them? Or do you dig deep and continue to serve the Lord? When life does not go as exactly as you thought it would, do you still love and trust Jesus? That is real faith, according to Peter. Question for you all this morning. A little, little self-examination that everybody does for themselves. What in this life can pull you away from faith in Jesus? Think about it for a minute. What in this life can pull you away from faith in Jesus? Is there anything in this world that you can think of that, oh yeah, that would pull me away from faith in Jesus? If you answer that question 
with nothing can pull me away from faith in Jesus. Friends, you have real faith. You have real faith. Our faith is gritty, it's grounded, it's firm on our living hope. And there's nothing in this world that can pull us away from this living hope. God wants each of you this morning to have this living hope. This living hope that's gritty, that's strong, that's firm, that's grounded. That when you do go through that trial, tribulation, or experience turbulence in life, you have that living hope, that firm foundation, and nothing can pull you away from it. Let's, let's finish it up here, verse 8 and 9. I, I just love this next verse. It's just a beautiful, beautiful verse. Um, I, I read it so many times this week. It just melts my heart every time I read it. Verse 8. He's talking about real faith here. Still continuing the same theme of verses 6, verses six and 7. Look at it, verse 8, closely. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Friends, Peter is talking about here, what he's talking about here is real faith. Real faith. You love Jesus, even though you've never seen him. I've never seen Jesus. I've never seen Jesus. I don't know what he looks like. I don't like pictures of Jesus in churches. I don't like pictures of Jesus in our house because nobody knows what he looks like. But let me tell you something, man. I love him. I love him so much because he's been so good to me. Uh, you believe in him, but you've never seen him. We believe in a Savior and a Lord that, that we've never seen with our eyes. The world finds that strange. The world finds, like, what is up with you? You've never even seen him, but yet you believe in him. Friends, that's the power of faith. That is the power of faith. There's a lot of things in this life we don't see with our natural eyes, but we believe in those things and we trust in those things. Friends, that is real faith, is believing in him, though you've never seen him. And real faith is you obey him. And how do you obey Christ? By following his word. You obey Christ by following his word. Obedience to God's commands and God's word and God's way of life is demonstrating real faith. And that's where he wants each of us. There's nothing more precious to you in this life than your faith in him. When you get to this point where there's nothing more important than him, it will produce, look at verse 8, the end of verse 8, it will produce an inexpressible joy that no one can steal from you. I, on the inside, there's this, I'm battered on the outside, uh, turmoil, you know, anger, tears, everything. But deep inside of us, there is this inexpressible joy that we have in the Lord. And that joy in our hearts is our strength. It is our hope in difficult times. Friends, having a living hope has got nothing to do with wishful thinking. It's got nothing to do with wanting this or hoping to get this or hoping to get that or hoping to win the lottery. It's this firm foundation of our eternal security in Christ. 
That is the living hope. And then he says the, the outcome, verse 9. He says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You having this faith in Christ, you having um, this living hope, it has a final destination. Faith will come to an end one day. And that faith will come to an end when you cross the finish line and you step into eternity and you see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Standing before him in all his glory. All the things that we, we, we study Sunday in and Sunday out about the glory of heaven and the riches of Christ. You know, right now, we have to accept it by faith. We have to believe it. We have to trust it. But one day, faith and belief will be replaced with being in his presence, in the glory of God. Friends, this is our living hope. This is the living hope that Christ offers all people at Christmas. Our li- living hope, the biblical definition of hope, is an, a living hope in Christ, the biblical definition, is an unwavering confidence in Christ in his word, and the eager expectation of our future in him. Jesus said, what about his word? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. It is the anchor for our hope. God wants to fill you with this living hope. Do you have, pause for a second, look inward. Do you have that living hope inside of you? Do you have that living hope dwelling on the inside of you? You can't see it on the outside. You know, we all got up this morning, brushed our hair, and dressed up all nice and neat and ready for church. And You can't see it on the outside. You can only see it on the inside. Do you have that living hope on the inside? The, the only reason you would not have that living hope on the inside is because you're not born again. Do you need to repent and put your trust in Christ? Do you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior? You're not, you, you, you don't trip into Christianity. You don't, uh, you're not raised into Christianity. You're, you, you, are, you have to be born again. And born again simply means he comes into your life. He comes into your heart. You receive him as your Lord and Savior. John said to all those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. So there's a receiving and there's a repenting and there's a believing. Have you been born again? If you have not been born again, ask Christ to come into your life. Say, God, please forgive me of my sin. I place my trust in you, Lord Jesus. And if you haven't, come see me after service. And we'll talk about salvation. We'll talk about faith in Christ. If you're here this morning and you do have that living hope, then be encouraged. Be encouraged that you've been born again and that you have this living hope. This living hope is for all people. This living hope is for all people who will come to Christ and who will put their trust in the Lord. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. I love this. It says, it's, it's kind of like a benediction. So maybe I'm, I'm kind of like reading this as a benediction over you guys this morning. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Friends, we can have joy and we can have peace 
in our trials, in our tribulations, in our difficult times. But that joy and that peace, it comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And that comes from being born again. He says, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit coming into our lives and giving us this living hope. Do you have this living hope? Put your faith and put your trust in Christ, and he will give you this living hope. As we go out, we got two weeks, two weeks till Christmas Day. Let's go out into this world and let's spread this living hope. Let's find people who are going through trials. Find people who are going through tribulations. Find people who are going through difficult times. And let's share with them the hope that is within each and every one of us by being born again and trusting in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, this morning that you came at Christmas time to give us a living hope. And that living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's through being born again. Father, I pray that you encourage each and every Christian this morning. Remind them, Lord. Sometimes, sometimes our minds and our hearts get sidetracked. Sometimes we get knocked off the horse. Remind us this morning that we have a living hope in you. And let that living hope bring peace, bring joy, bring laughter, and just a, a thankful heart, Lord, a heart that rejoices in your goodness, that thanks you for your salvation. Give us, Lord, that living hope through you, Lord Jesus. Each and every one of us, let it rule and reign in our hearts. In Jesus' awesome name I pray, amen.